Hi girl, how are you? Hi everyone, how are you? I'm feeling good, and you? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Thanks. A bit tired, but it's fine. Yeah, um, I'm so excited to get started. Okay, same. so it's gonna be great. Tell us what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so we're going to, of course, make our podcast about comfort women, and so this first episode um, is going to be. Uh, about the historical context, because uh, I, we think it's very important for you to really have an insight on what the context was and why it led to such an atrocious system. Um, and in addition, we would like to give you a glimpse of how life might have been for these women and how much trauma they went, uh, they, they went through. through sorry. Um, so to illustrate this, I'd like to read you a very moving testimony from a, a former comfort woman who said that... Um, 12 soldiers raped me in quick succession, after which I was given half an hour rest. I bled so much and I was in so much pain. I could not even stand up. I could not resist the soldiers because they might kill me. So as you see, it's very, very tragic and moving and very terrible. And that's why we need to talk about it because it was an atrocious event. And um, as Hannah Arendt also described, it's a very good representation of the banality of evil in terms of war. And so in this podcast, we will discuss this system from its origins to the way it functions and affecting its numerous victims. Yeah, I agree. It's really a difficult topic to discuss, but I think that was making it so interesting. So that's why we chose it. So first, uh, we're going to talk about the origins of the comfort woman system. So actually, it's really hard to know for sure when the first Yanjo uh, was created. And sorry, uh, everyone, for our Japanese uh, accent. We really yeah. apologize in advance so bad, for not making honor to this language, but we'll do our best, our best we promise. Yeah. So um, these Yanjo were created because most records were destroyed after the Japan surrendered in 1945. So, however, we can trace back records of brothers that were made, especially for troops and officials, as soon as 1932 with the Shanghai incident. Uh, in the late 1937, after the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War, the comfort woman system became a more general policy. So we can see like where it gets like really uh, big. And so the Nanjing massacre of 1937 marked a sudden increase in confirmed station by 1938. And at that time, the system was like a really general pattern. So as the war continued, military leaders justified the system, saying that it is a way to prevent rape on civilians from the ever-growing troops, and that it provides soldiers with leisure. Okay, uh, we don't like that. We all agree on that. Uh, but that what happened. Uh, they said that there is no statistical data on the number of workers in Yanjo, but by April uh, 15 in 1939, between 1,400 and 1,600 Kofirmuwan were imported to serve the first, uh, 21st Army. So those women were brought many from Japan and Korea, and they were dispatched into three different types of stations. They were the permanent station in major cities, then the semi-permanent, and then some temporary station. Uh, two times a week, those women were inspected for venereal disease to protect the soldier. Yeah, thank you so much, Manon, for explaining us that. And as you can see, it's a very, it's almost an uh, industrial process. It's very organized. So I'm going to talk a bit more about the organization because it's crazy how much they organize something so cruel and so terrible. 
So two main methods were used to um, employ uh, women from all over Asia. Uh, they either were recruited locally and as local civilians uh, that were for the most part not even prostitutes, or they were recruiting agents that would be sent to Korea, Taiwan or Japan to say like comfort women by using deceptive methods or even violence. And from 1942, even the Ministry of War was getting involved in the control of comfort station. So the question is, um, why? Why this system? Maybe you're wondering, because we wonder that too. Why not losing legal methods and why not involving um, prostitutes that were actually qualified and willing to do this? Why using force and rape? Well, first and foremost, it was the, in the army's interest to provide soldiers with this type of leisure. And there were just not enough prostitutes to do the job, as cruel as it might sound and as cruel as it is. Raping civilians in occupied territories only increases local hostility. Moreover, in February 1942, the Japanese Imperial Army criminal law considered rape as only a secondary crime, so it was not that bad to rape a person at that time, which is completely horrible to think about now. And as they really wanted to prevent the spread of STDs and diseases and wanted to reinforce security for the soldiers, the system was quickly accepted because they could control the women and control the, the sexual intercourse more easily. And moreover, due to the strong racism in Japan at the time, the fact of using women from various Southern Asian countries really actually reduced guilt from the soldiers and they did not feel that guilty, which is horrible. Yeah, and if all of this was not bad enough already, uh, we have to remember that the comfort woman system was a really industry, like you said, with a precise and efficient organization. So the procurement of this comfort woman was made in a very efficient way that would ensure the army maximum effectiveness. So depending on where the woman came from, the methods were not the same. So we're going to see it like different cases. So for the Korean and the Taiwanese women, the army started uh, selecting recruiting agents from 1939 and ordered specific quotas for women. So we talk about quotas here. Testimony shows that the most used technique was deceit, especially false promises for employment in Japan to poor peasant family. So the idea is that this military would come to like really poor uh, neighborhoods and villages and would say, okay, so we have like an offer. And sometimes they would say like, is to employ them. But at the end, we all know there wasn't uh, the actual reason. And so that's why this woman like didn't know where they would like really get to. And so everything was done to make them feel comfortable up, but until the moment they arrive at the station in order for them to not turn back. So they didn't have any like escape, uh, like liberty to escape where they were uh, being tracked to. So unlike in Korea and Taiwan, abduction and kidnapping were used in China and the Philippines. So it seems as if troops did not even try to conceal what they were doing in those regions. Uh, maybe the strong and widespread anti-Japanese guerrilla movement there could explain this extra violent behavior. And also in the Dutch and the East Indies, so the now Indonesia, uh, many testimonies show that sexual violence and rape were committed against women directly after the Japanese invasion. A Dutch government report stated that around 200 to 300 European women working station there, and of which 65 were mostly certain forced into prostitution. So we can see that also people from Europe were used in this comfort station. 
Yeah, exactly. So it was very widespread. And as you might imagine, from the violence of this system and the total lack of choice and consent, life as a comfort woman was dreadful. Most of them actually asked to be sent back home when they realized the real job conditions, but were either forced to stay or told that their families needed to pay tremendous amounts of money before they could leave. So they were basically trapped there. And uh, once they arrived at the station, their nightmare really truly began. Each woman served up to 10 men a day on regular periods and up to 40 before combat. Can you imagine that? And the regulation for each man was 30 minutes. And it was cut to only a few minutes in more busy times. So it literally looks like an industry and as if these women were literal machines. Um, price was set depending uh, on the military client, but most women said that they received very little to no payment at all for uh, for their work from the managers. Moreover, in addition to the lack of remuneration, some clients were actually violent, especially those who were drunk, and some women were either forced to take drugs to cope or they, they would take drugs themselves just to cope and to manage the pain, and many of them actually committed suicide, so it was just a terrible, terrible event. Yeah, and so what we all wonder now, like that's why our question when we do our research is, uh, why did the U.S. forces ignore the comfort woman issue? So that now we're kind of caught up on how the system works and how many different violations of human rights it caused. You might wonder why the U.S. forces ignore the issue. Uh, to be honest, we really wonder why. So here's kind of like the answer we can have. Uh, so when Japan surrendered, surrendered on August 15, 1945, the U.S. forces occupied the territory just two weeks later in order to democratize Japan. However, they did not use the occasion to deal with the comfort woman issue at all. Actually, the issue was not even mentioned during the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, even though the U.S. authorities knew about the issue. So it's difficult to know for sure what are the reasons behind this, this, this inaction, but there are several hypotheses. So maybe it is the fact that the majority of victims were Asian and so neither white or citizen of the Allied nations. This also could be explained by the soldier common perception of women, especially in the military ideology. And many men believe that women owe them favors in exchange for their fighting on the field. Uh, also, the fact that the U.S. forces work hard to prevent the spread of venereal diseases in the army might also explain this lack of reper repercussion, as the comfort woman system helped in that direction. Some testimony even describes certain American brothers with a very similar organization to that of comfort station. And also, I would like the fact that uh, silence uh, was a really uh, complicated topic because most of these women just did not want to talk about that because of the repercussion that it could have in their family. It just in general, uh, they felt that it was like a shame what happened to them. So uh, silence in this uh, case is really important and need to be also taken in consideration. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's very important what you said about silence. And can you actually believe that this disregarding behavior from the U.S. actually did not change until 1945 and even later at times uh, because of the state of the conflict and the almost certainty that the Navy power in Europe was going to fail soon in 1945, the control of civilians from uh, the US Army became actually a priority. Thus, the general, the adjutant general reaffirmed the suppression of military prostitution uh, with the War Depart Department General Policy. However, even with this measure, 
sexual violence did not end with the conflict, especially for Japanese women. And some testimonies have shown that massive rape was conducted by the Allied occupation forces against the Japanese women. And in a heartbreaking testimony, Oshiro Masayu, uh, who is an Okinawan historian, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, but she explained that, um, I quote, soon after landing, the, marine tr the marines mopped up the entire village, but found no signs of Japanese forces. Taking advantage of this situation, they started hunting from women in broad daylight. So the level of fear for these women was so high because of the atrocities that the troops were doing on them that on August 16 of 1945, right after Japan's surrender, the railway stations and the train stations in Tokyo were crowded with women and children who hoped to be able to escape before the troops arrived. They were so scared that they wanted to just leave to remote places. Can you imagine that? And in Japan, to avoid the issue of mass rape, the government actually reasserted um, a similar um, uh, alternative of conference station and the proposition was actually accepted and former prostitutes were working and were, um, sorry, former prostitutes and prostitutes that were still working were requisitioned by the army uh, in so-called beer halls, so that's the equivalent of uh, comfort stations basically. And up to 2,391 women were employed there, so it's basically another type of comfort women system, so as you see it did not even end with the war. So yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah no. So what do you think about, like, we kind of do like a summary of all these big historical... Yeah, uh, that's a great idea. Okay, so like what we can take from all of this is that the comfort woman system has been in place for many, many years. And it does not necessarily come in only one form, as we can see, like there is different uh, depending on where the women were coming from and like the different station. Uh, but what is always certain is that life as comfort woman is just unbearable, like we can't even imagine. Um, and that all the victims and survivors were extremely brave for even going through it alive. But the worst is that they still did not get the acknowledgement and the recognition they deserve, as the Japanese government still did not own up to its crimes. We're not going to leave you with this, don't worry, we come back with our next episode. And so the next episode is going to explore the redress movement and see how the comfort woman issue looks like nowadays. So years after the events happen. So see you for our net podcast yeah. and hope you enjoyed this one. Exactly. Thank you for listening.